This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author John McGregor discusses his new book, Reservoir 13. Then PW Reviews Director Johnny Segura previews PW's Best Books of 2017. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. I hear we have a new number one in hardcover nonfiction. We do. This is Walter Isaacson's book, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, starred review. And we say, praising the subject of this illuminating biography as history's most creative genius, Isaacson, who also wrote The uh, the Innovators, uh, uses observations and insights in 7,200 extant pages of notes Leonardo left behind as interpretive touchstones for assessing the artist's life and work. Um, we, we say that uh, uh, he cites not only primary sources, but secondary material by art critics, essayists, and da Vinci's other biographers. This is a monumental tribute to a titanic figure, and obviously readers have been thinking so because it just jumped right up at number one. All right. Then we have uh, a book from – I'm not touching on everything. I'm just uh, just going to talk about some of the highlights. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, The Wisdom of Sundays, Life-Changing Insights, and Super Soul Conversations. She says, I see it as an offering. That is this book. If you want to be more fully present and live your life with a wide open heart, this is the place to come to. And this is something she had mentioned on her show. So uh, this is 10 chapters about her own uh, spiritual journey, and that's at number three. Uh, number eight, Scott Kelly with – uh, Margaret Lazarus Dean. This is Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery, another starred review. Um, this is maybe the third or fourth memoir by an astronaut that I've seen this year. Maybe one of them was last year. Uh, Kelly, he was a former astronaut who spent a record-setting year abroad aboard excuse me, the International Space Station, shares his experience of space travel in this fascinating memoir. Uh, it's an in- inspirational story, and he's got lots of uh, insider stuff on really what it's like to live on space for a long, long time. Number 14, a cookbook, Melissa Clark, Dinner in an Instant, 75 Modern Recipes for Your Pressure Cooker, Multi-Cooker, and Instant Pot. So this is the third, and I want to say now fourth book that I've seen on the Instant Pot. Mm. This is going to be, I, I think, uh, on the top of many people's gift-buying list for the seasons. Sure, yeah. I've got it on mine, uh, the pressure cooker and the book. So uh, we're also, we also have a uh, another memoir, or it should be a memoir by Gabrielle Union. She's an actress known for being Mary Jane, uh, best known for that. Uh, the title is We're Going to Need More Wine. These are stories, uh, essays, really. This is at number 16. She, she talks about moving f- with her family from Omaha, New- 
Nebraska to Pleasanton, California in grade school. And she grapples with being black in a predominantly white student population and uh, as she attempts to assimilate and gain peer approval by being the class clown. Um, she has a lot of stories to share, some really difficult, but she's also very, very funny. And uh, we say that her no-holds-barred essays and intimate voice will appeal to her fans as well as those less familiar with her work. So something that will appeal to a lot of people. And then we have Gretchen Carlson, a former Fox News anchor, Be Fierce, Stop Harassment, and Take Your power back. Here, we say she draws from her own experience of being sexually harassed to illuminate an epidemic of inappropriate behavior in the workplace and to educate women in their rights. And 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 obviously, this is something that has been in the news a lot, yep. Harvey Weinstein. But but also, you know, we, we, we ran uh, an article or, or two on sexual harassment in, in the book publishing world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's happens everywhere. So this is this is a book about that. We say that uh, the phrase when I was Miss America appears a few too many times, you know, although that appears a few too many times, her inclusion of her own stories is courageous and her commitment to making sexual harassment a nonpartisan issue is is admirable. So uh, finally at number 25, we have another cookbook, Lydia Bastianich with her daughter Tanya Bastianich Manwali. Lydia celebrates like an Italian 220 foolproof recipes that make every meal a party. Uh, so, as, as I said, it's co-written, and uh, she highlights an issue that plagues authors of Italian cookbooks. Uh, this is one of those things. She's 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 a great cookbook writer, a great chef. Her recipes are wonderful. But our review said, with so many restaurants and cookbooks on television shows focusing on Italian food, how does an author come up with anything new? The answer to that is uh, one to cook for big parties. So, it, it, there's nothing new in here, but it does offer a lot of uh, 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 guidance to to plan for parties ahead of time. But again, there's nothing really new or groundbreaking, but if you want to plan something for the holidays, that's the book to go to. And fiction. In fiction, we have a new number two. Dan Brown is still sitting pretty at number one. Number two is Deep Freeze by John Sanford, uh, the 10th Virgil Flowers novel. We say that it's a fine story. Um, and Virgil Flowers is a Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension agent and he returns to the little Mississippi River town of Tripton, which was the setting for the book Deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say that uh, along the way to a satisfying ending, Virgil displays the rough humor and rough justice that make him such an appealing character. Right. So this is one for the fans. Uh, number three, Uncommon Types, Some Stories by Tom Hanks, uh, who right. I feel uh, everybody's talking about at the moment, um, partly because of his David S. Pumpkins uh, appearance on SNL mm. last year, which is coming back into vogue right. because of the uh, the Halloween season, and partly because he's just sort of, um, he, he's he's appearing in music videos. He's basically at the point in his career where he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, right, and right. so if he wants to write a book of short stories and put it out there, okay, you know, sure, let the guy do that. Uh, we say that his this debut collection is a wide-ranging affair of 17 stories threaded together by the recurring image of typewriters. Some stories are all about the typewriters. Some only mention them in passing. Um, In one story, four friends decide to build a backyard rocket and orbit the moon. And uh, another is a standard romantic comedy about a wacky and doomed relationship. We say that Hanks' stories sometimes have pat happy endings, but not always. Uh, One of them employs a sharp, unexpected conclusion to elevate a story of time travel and romance at the 1939 World's Fair. 
And uh, we say that Hank's narrators speak with similar verbal tics, but the stories they tell generally charm. And the only true misfires come when he breaks away from traditional structure. So uh, this is certainly uh, sounds worth worth picking up. Even Great. if you know, yeah. you're, you're a little uh, uncertain about whether a, a Hollywood star can really turn to writing fiction right. uh, with any success, uh, I, I think I think this is genuinely worth looking at on its Great. literary merits. Um, down at number 15, It Devours, a Welcome to Night Vale novel. This is the second novel tied into the paranormal podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. And this one examines how religion and science work in a town that doesn't make sense. Uh, we say that the relationship between science and religion is satisfyingly explored with humor and insight, and the characters neatly sidestep cliches and become wholly three-dimensional. Readers need not be familiar with the podcast or the previous book to enjoy this work, but of course fans are the ones who are mm-hmm. going to pick it up and are going to really be into it. And finally, one I wanted to make a note of, even though it's not a new book, Lincoln and the Bardo is at number 22 mm. on our list. Um, no no surprise uh, after getting a very prestigious award nod. Uh, of course, we gave it a starred review when it came out back in February. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a, it's amazing, amazing work. Great. So uh, it's definitely getting that award boost. And it's nice to see that, you know, fancy schmancy literary awards can still drive some sales. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Looking at the numbers, it sold three times as many copies this week as the week before, uh, which is always nice for a book that's almost a year old. Yeah. Yep. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, John McGregor tells us how one girl's disappearance influences the life of a small town. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got John McGregor in the office with us. His new book is Reservoir 13. John, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So your novel begins with a 13-year-old girl's disappearance from an English village. Tell us about the village and the girl. The village is in a part of England called the Peak District, which is bang in the middle of England. Um, And it's a very picturesque rural area. Um, Lots of farming, mostly sheep farming, big hills, moors, woods, all that kind of stuff. But it's also a weirdly industrial area. There's a lot of mining historically and a lot of quarrying happening still. And... So it's just there's a funny it's a funny mixed landscape where there's there's a kind of tourism that relies on it being picturesque and rural and quiet, and the people who live there rely on the heavy industry and the the industry of agriculture. Um, so it's, it's always been a fascinating landscape to me. And the book is essentially about the village and the people who live in the village against the backdrop of what's happened with the disappearance of the 13 year old girl. So tell us about this 13 year old girl. Her name is Rebecca, or Becky, or Bex, as the narrative keeps insisting. Um, And she is on holiday with her parents in the village for Christmas and New Year. And they go for a walk, and she just disappears. And that happens just before the first page of the book, essentially. And the first couple of pages goes over the fairly familiar territory of the mountain rescue service are out looking, the police are out looking, the villagers all turn out and volunteer for a big search party. And time goes on, and then there are no clues, there are no answers, um, and the investigation never really 
disappears from the narrative, but also never really reaches any any satisfactory resolution. And it's about how the family, but more particularly the village, deal with this this thing that is just always there in the background and never, because it hasn't been resolved, never really goes away. So who are some of the villagers that we get to know? She has her family, presumably she has friends. Yeah, well, she doesn't really have any friends in the village because they were on holiday and the family are kind of very much in the background. I didn't really want to touch them. I wanted to kind of leave them with their their privacy. Um, So we see everything from the villagers' perspective to whom the girl and her family are are actually outsiders. Mm. Um, But we've, yeah, we've got We've got the family that run the sheep farm. We've got the dairy farmer. We've got the vicar. We've got the school teachers. We've got a group of teenagers who are the same age as the missing girl and say that they didn't know her, but maybe they maybe they did. Maybe they had some contact with her. Um, and I, you know, I started off with quite a small group of characters, maybe half a dozen. And the more I got into the the process of writing the book, just the more characters kept emerging and emerging until. By the end, um, there's a cast list of about of about 60. One of the things I really enjoyed about writing this novel was just layer and creating layer and layer and layer of detail, all the different characters and all of their lives and all of their backgrounds, but also their context and their landscape and just adding lots of detail about the natural world and about their kind of working routines and about the annual cycles of the weather and the seasons and and creating narrative out of detail became a lot of fun really so you as we were, you were just talking about there's you know you, there's the uh, the town that is uh that the tourists like to go to and then you have the locals and it sounds like this family as you say they were on vacation on holiday so do you have a little bit of a, of a them and us uh tension going on there i mean it's it's not so much tension it's more the family situation with you know they've lost their daughter um is of concern to the people in the village and obviously has an emotional impact on them but they don't have any actual personal connection to the family and so it's not it's not a real tragedy for them mm. it's 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 something that's happening to somebody else and and that that remains uncomfortable for people. You know, they, they 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 want to help, they want to be involved, but they don't want to interfere, they don't want to intrude. And the, the kind of... I'm always interested in writing about those kind of tensions where, where something is, it's one thing, but it's also another thing. Um, and and yeah, in, in, in the village, in, in those kinds of villages, um, in England in particular, there, there's always lots of those tensions of two different expectations two different ways of seeing the landscape um kind of butting up against each other and sort of in conflict but sort of relying on each other um you know so the farmers rely on the income that the tourists bring to the area and the tourists rely on the farmers to to make the area look the way it does and yet at the same time the farmers resent the tourists and the tourists resent the farmers for having ugly barns and kind of of work a day think you know they want a very kind of picturesque landscape um and so there's just all of these little kind of tensions all of these people butting up against each other which for me is often where the the drama and the story comes in 
What was the process like for you? Were you, you were talking about adding layers of detail. Was that a very organic process? It sounds almost like uh, doing a painting. Like first you have the pencil sketch and then you start to, to outline and then you add the colors. And Yeah, it, it, it wasn't like that. It was almost like I built myself a thousand piece jigsaw a piece at a time and then put the jigsaw together. So I, I, I wrote the whole thing out of sequence. And I wrote, um, so each of the characters, I kind of wrote their storylines out. And then mm. for each of the animals, I wrote their, uh, like I had the, a year in the life of a fox or a year in the life of the blackbird. Or um, I had a whole sequence of narrative about haymaking or a whole sequence of narrative about um, bringing the cows into milk and taking them out again. Until I had a whole kind of ring binder full of each of these elements of the story hmm. and some of which were for a particular month of the year and and then because the book is spread across 13 years um with 13 months in each year i i just kind of plugged all of those pieces of narrative into this grid essentially um which was a really fun way of putting a book together and i really knew like it wasn't something i've done before and i sort of stumbled on 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 the process by accident but it meant that while I was doing the writing, I was only thinking about the sentences. Mm. And while I was putting the book together, I wasn't having to worry about the sentences. So I, I, I got to think about words first, and then I got to think about structure and rhythm and pace. And it was a really enjoyable way of working. How did you stumble on doing that? It just It's just what you felt like doing? I, th I, think, I think so. I think I had this idea in my head that I, I knew I wanted... I knew I wanted the book to have a very regular rhythm. So I knew that I wanted to, to kind of spend the same amount of time on each month of each of the years. So I knew that meant a page or two for each month. And I knew that within each of those months, I wanted a little bit of story, a little bit of weather, a little bit of the natural world. And every time I sat down to try and write that kind of cold, I just kept coming up against, well, actually, I don't know that much about foxes or I don't know what time you know what time of year the this tree comes into bloom and I just kept coming up against my own ignorance so I had to go away and do the research but then instead of just doing all the research and making lots of notes and then starting the book on page one while I was doing the research I was writing the the actual text that I wanted to use um, and that just seemed like a natural way to go and once I'd started doing that I thought well okay well I'll, I'll take each character and work out their storyline in one mm. in one go um, and it was yeah it was fun it was it was almost like writing lots and lots of very short stories with very narrow themes and then just kind of stacking them up on the desk and then by the time I came to put the book together I just had all of this raw material to almost literally kind of cut out and paste in, in, in a mm. long line so I want to talk about the characters in a bit, but right now you, you, you tend to talk a lot about nature and, and natural settings and scenes. I mean, you talk about the pub, you talk about the, I guess, the community house or the main, the, the main commons, I guess. But you also talk about, um, the, 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 um, uh, the reservoirs of, and the reservoir of the title. Tell us about the reservoir, but also tell us about what draws you to, nature into these settings um well the reservoirs there are there are 13 reservoirs around this village and that's that's a 
that just is a feature of the landscape in in the Peak District in this part of the world, um, because there are so many valleys. In the early part of the 20th century, they they built a lot of reservoirs to supply the the big industrial cities um, in the area, and I don't know. I think in common with a lot of people, I've always found reservoirs an interesting feature. There's something they they look very natural. They're kind of nestled in the valley, and the woods have grown up around them, and they've kind of settled into the landscape. And yet, there's this kind of uncanny sense in which they're completely not natural. That there are dams, and there are sluices, and there are, mm. it, and there's always warnings about swimming, and there's this kind of weird danger. And and in a lot of cases, you know that there are villages under the water, and right. you know that that were you know the people were evicted, and the the valley was flooded, and and in times of drought, when the reservoir levels drop, the, those villages reappear. And there's obviously something kind of inherently spooky and uncomfortable about that. Um, so I've just always been drawn to kind of the idea, the image of, of the reservoir. Um, something, you know, all those ideas about things beneath the surface and, and things kind of not talked about. Um, but then, yeah, the natural world, I think... I think because I've only ever written urban stories before this, and because I'm not of the country, you know, I've I've lived in cities for the last twenty, thirty years. It's it was a new landscape for me, mm-hmm. and so I really went. I just went all in, kind of, to find out what it is about the rural landscape right. that is is enmeshed in people's lives, and and the way in which when you live in a in a rural landscape, you're affected much more by the weather the seasons um whether the trees are in leaf or not you know mm-hmm. and 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 it just gradually became more and more important to include the daily lives of various animals and various birds and even just the flowers and the trees to give them a kind of equivalence with the human characters and to make it one big picture mm. that just I don't know it instinctively felt like the way of telling this story the number 13 keeps reappearing as we were talking about this the the 13 years the 13 months in the year which is not what one thinks of as the <laughs> usual structure but certainly is very much in keeping yeah. with this natural setting the, mm-hmm. the lunar cycle mm-hmm. rather than our 365 day calendar and the 13 reservoirs uh, yep. the 13th of which seems to hold particular significance. Where did that come from? That was it was on it was mainly it was mainly arbitrary. Um I started off knowing that the girl was going to be thirteen. I th- mm. this novel came from a short story I wrote some years previously in which there was a five year old girl who went missing in this kind of landscape. And when I came to develop it into a novel I thought, well, if, you know, if I make a 13, then immediately it opens up the story, it opens up the possibilities of, of where she might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that I wanted her to be 13, and I was just thinking a lot about that being a kind of an interesting age when you're on the cusp of adulthood, but you're, you're still a child, but maybe you're an adult. And then I just I kind of ran away with the idea of the number 13. And mm-hmm. it was a way of... I used the number 13 as a kind of organizing principle. Um, so 
when I was researching animals, I, I made sure I had 13 animals hmm. and I made sure I had 13 birds. And I'm, when I was researching um, work routines in the village, I found 13 jobs to, to look into. And it was just a way of forcing myself to do plenty. You know, if I if I just had gone, well, I, I need some animals, then I would have picked the four or five that I already know about. Right. But But by insisting to myself that I wanted 13, I kind of made myself go further and, and find animals that I don't know about. Um, and it just, I think whenever I've written any any novel, I've always had some kind of essentially pointless organizing device just to give me a way of getting through the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just landed on 13 and, yeah, got carried away with the idea of it. And it's, you know, it's a it's an interesting number, you know, is it? an unlucky number or a lucky number or, you know, 13 lunar months in the year. It's just, it was intriguing and it was fun to to play around with. And the weird thing was that as soon as I'd started doing that, the number 13 just was everywhere Mm. in my, in my daily life, you know, just to a really uncanny extent. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with John McGregor, author of Reservoir 13, about the uncanny number 13 and its relevance to the book. I love this idea of the the organizing structure. It feels to me like something that maybe engages the intellectual side of things when the creative side is struggling or faltering or not sure which way to go. Is that how it felt for you? Yeah, I mean, it gave me it gave me a real scaffolding for the for the working process i didn't have to come to the desk each morning and kind of panic about what i was going to write about that day you know i just i had this kind of task list to work my way through and it became kind of an enormous task list because i had 13 sets of things to find 13 (laughs) elements of and then for each of those i wrote 13 passages of, of text um so the numbers kind of stacked up and i never really finished the job mm at a certain point I felt like I had enough material to to get on with the writing but um but yeah it just it was a way of bullying myself through the through the writing process so let's talk about some of the the characters um you have a custodian who is uh who who's who's fired from his job for for having pornographic material you have a housewife who leaves mysteriously or just leaves suddenly and then you have someone who comes back like a salesman someone who has come back to the town who are these people and how do they all work together um there was a process for me of it was a kind of two track process on the one hand i had a fairly methodical um list i you know, i wanted i knew that i wanted a school caretaker i knew that i wanted the guy who runs the pub i knew that i wanted uh, the guy who runs the sheep farm, um, and and you know, I started kind of plugging those in fairly methodically, and and in terms of writing their characters 
began with the kind of fairly mundane stuff about their working routine and then built up from there to try and picture who they were. But then gradually, once you've got those kind of central figures, you just start imagining the relationships. And so, okay, so Jones, the the school custodian, um, I pictured him as a, as a kind of grouchy figure and he's always in his, in his little work hut and he's kind of shirking his work and he's just hiding away in there and he's not doing what the teachers want him to do. So then you start thinking, well, well, why is he grouchy? You know, how old is he? How long has he been working at the school? What's his situation at home? And then I kind of figured, well, okay, he's his sister's at home and his sister has some kind of mental health issue and he's been looking after her for years. And even though he's very grouchy about that, he's still been providing her with, with appropriate care. And so there's a kind of complication there. Um, and if, so for each of the characters, it was just a kind of process of, of how can I make the reader's image of who they are more and more complicated as they go through the book. Um, and my image of who they are more and more complicated as I was going through the book. Um, and partly if, if I was interested in, in a, in a, in a very small community like that, the way that everybody thinks they know everybody else, but actually there's tons of things that they don't know about each other. Um, and that kind of tension again, between, knowing things and revealing things and hiding things. And what was the relationship to Rebecca? I mean, that, that that's the key thing, is that none of them really have a relationship with Rebecca, the missing girl. Um, and as time goes on, what they actually develop is a relationship with the fixed image of her. So So when she goes missing, there's a photograph in the news, there's... Um, a short video clip that gets played on the news and very quickly this image this moment of her more or less the day she went missing mm-hmm. gets crystallized as that's the only thing they know about her they, they didn't know her when she was younger they don't know the family particularly and so their relationship becomes this kind of weird this weird kind of longing for for the person that she was and and this weird kind of and there's a re- almost a recurring dream that various people in the village have of of finding her at various points in her life. And there's a the group of teenagers who were the same age as her when she went missing. We see them growing up and we see them, you know, that they're, they're 26 by the end of the book. And we see them finishing school and leaving home and going off to university and coming back. And, and they're a kind of stand-in for the person that the villagers want to know, the person of Rebecca who never they never see growing up. And there are twins who uh, are, are children when she disappears, and they really grow up with this legend. What's that like for them? Yeah, well, they so they're born um, in the first year after she's gone missing, mm. and um, yeah, so they grow up just hearing stories about her, um, and she becomes this kind of legendary figure. And there's there's a there's a scene um, quite late in the book when when one of the boys has has heard lots of stories about her and has decided that she's living in the caves and, and has gone into the caves to, to, to try and find her and, and, and his mum finds out and his mum has to explain A, that's not likely and B, how dangerous the caves are and and, and that's, another, that's another instance there are lots of instances through the book where there are no clues about where Rebecca might be because I don't know mm. what's happened to her but there are lots of moments when 
the possibilities are kind of discussed and revealed. Um, and one of the things that gets discussed is the whole area is riddled with caves and old mine workings and so some kind of mishap along those lines might be possible. Um, but yeah, to, but those twins are kind of... Um, they're a kind of vehicle for the idea that when something like this happens to a small community like that, that community is then forever tagged with with that incident, and and people mm. kind of nationally associate that village with with that incident. Um, mm. And over time, some people in the village start to resent that and start to kind of want to shrug it off, and others can't let go of it. So some of them want to be more than that place where Rebecca disappeared. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like you say you yourself don't know what happened to Rebecca, so there's no narrative resolution in in that way. So what kind of payoff do you give the reader at the at the conclusion of the book? If it's not too spoilery to say, because it sounds like this is not so much a factual resolution, like a whodunit or a what happened, um, but more just an emotional catharsis in a way. Is there is there a payoff of that sort? Yeah, I mean, there is certainly not a payoff in in the way that I think a lot of readers have been trained to expect, where wherein if somebody goes missing, then there are a series of clues and there's a kind of investigative process, and then we find out, and that's that's it. Um, for me, one of the things this book is about is about the tragedy of not knowing, and that mm. is something that happens in life, and. And it's awful, and that's what I wanted the book to be partly about exploring. But I also wanted the book to explore everything else that's happening in 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 the community, um, and to kind of set her loss against all of the other dramas and losses and and joys that that are going on in in the life of that community over the next thirteen years. You you tend to like, or, or at least you've written about communities before. I think it was, maybe it's your first novel, I don't remember, was that um, If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, which you mentioned before is an inner, you've written about the, the city's urban environments, and this is in the inner city, I don't remember where, but, but you're talking about... Uh, people who don't necessarily know each other what is your what what and, and again these villagers uh they you say that they they know each other but they don't know each other quite as well as one would think yeah i i don't know where that comes from that interest and it's i was asked about it recently and it clearly has become a pattern and i guess <laughs> i mean I, on the one hand i i, I like to think that i've re- written a very different book each time I've written a novel. Um, but clearly, the idea of community is is some kind of preoccupation for me. And I guess it's in the same way as some novelists, like the family is their territory. And some novelists, like the relationship, the romantic relationship is their territory. Mm. I think for whatever reason for me, it, it is very, communities of various sorts. Um, and yeah, in my first novel, it was people thrown together in, in one street in, in the inner city and how their lives are connected even though they don't know each other um, in my last novel even the dogs it was a group of mostly homeless people mm-hmm. who were, had kind of formed a community of sorts 
that was partly supportive and partly destructive and um, kind of a family, but not really a family. And and in this one, I think I was really interested in the idea that that people these people do know a lot about each other, and often the way the narrative is told is is in a kind of in the form of gossip. Mm-hmm. So somebody was seen leaving leaving somebody's house, or it had been said that so and so had done such a thing. Um, and nobody's really owning that gossip, but it just becomes generally known. And I'm just interested in how that would create a community of people and, and people who may not necessarily have that much in common, but, but are just thrown together. I think, I don't know. It's it's. I think because I'm somebody, I'm one of those people who enjoys overhearing conversations in public mm-hmm. Um, watching people in public um, guessing what's happening for people Um, I think the idea of a community where there are lots of different layers of how close or how far away you you are from somebody and how how closely or how far away you know them I think that's that's what a community is to me and it it just seems like it's full of stories you're a professor of creative writing. How does that influence your your own writing and vice versa? It's been really interesting. I've I've been teaching at the University of Nottingham for for four or five years now. And I was slightly aware of it at first. I'd shied away from teaching for a long time. Um but I'm really enjoying it and what I hadn't expected was the extent to which it would force me to examine my own process and my own thinking about writing and about reading um, and my own kind of values. And it's really been, you know, if you know you've got to go into a room and explain something to people, it really forces you to think a lot more clearly about it and and to understand it a lot more clearly. Um, So, I mean, that's been the main benefit for me. I'd, I'd like to think that for the students, they've learned they've learned things that they were not expecting to learn. I think often a lot of students will turn up to a creative writing course expecting to be shown like the secret handbook. Right. You know, like, chapter one, this is how you do a sense of place. Chapter two, this is how you do voice. Chapter three, this is how you find an agent. You know, and I'm not interested in giving them the secret handbook because I don't think it exists, but I am interested in showing them some fantastic writing and showing them how to kind of pull that apart, look under the bonnet, work out how it was done and work out how to do the same thing to their own writing and, and kind of pull their own writing apart and, and get under the bonnet as it were. Um, yeah. Do you find that this has led you to do more, analysis of your own writing while you're writing it or post facto or do you just keep moving on to the next project I don't think it's made me analyze my own work while I'm working on it or even afterwards I think it's made me harder on my own work mm. I think I think looking really closely at other writers and at other writers processes has really made me uh, I don't know, those areas that I was maybe being a bit lazy about or was maybe being a bit complacent about, it's made me think, okay, well, if so-and-so is 
being really hard on that aspect, then then I can I can do that too. And it's just yeah, I think it's made me more aware of the community of writers and what other people are doing, and made me want to kind of raise my game. Since that community may be the focus of a, a future book. No, I, I, <laughs> if I ever try and propose a novel about novelists, I, I really hope somebody will stop me. <laughs> We've been talking with John McGregor, and you can find his book Reservoir 13 in stores right now. John, thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. You're very welcome. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews director Johnny Segura talks about the best books of the year. Stay tuned. This is David Friend, the author of The Naughty 90s, The Triumph of the American Libido, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Reviews director Johnny Segura is here to tell us all about this year's best books. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Mark. Thank you. Thank you and Rose for having me. Very happy to have you here and uh, under your auspices as reviews director. I think it's the the first time we've brought you in under the new title. It's very exciting. I've been pretty good at avoiding you, but my run has come to an end. Here I am. And now it's going to be more often now that we got you. I'm in the bunker now. (laughs) Yes, yes, you are. So here we are at the end of October, having already decided what the best books of the year are are. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you. Um, you know, this is my first year at, in this role doing it. So it was, it was uh, my first time at the rodeo, so to, so to speak. And uh, you'll, you'll be shocked to hear it was a lot of reading. It was a lot of reading. And it was great to, to go back and, and look at things that, you know, we had seen earlier in the year and maybe had fallen off of the radar or, you know, things that I never saw at all just because we get, you know, we review, what, 8,000, 8,500 books a year or whatever, and, and you know, nobody right. can look at all of them. Um, so for me, it was fantastic. It was sort of like, um, you know, a couple of months of really intensive reading and sort of getting a, a vast education on, on important things that I'd missed out on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And both fiction and nonfiction. Previously, your role was uh, fiction editor. Uh, yes. And so now you you got to sink your teeth into some of the nonfiction as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, not all books contain things that are entirely made up. Was, Who knew? It's nuts. Who knew? It's nuts. <laughs> so so we we came up with our uh, top ten. We got five nonfiction, five fiction. Uh, is this something you want to talk about now, or do you want to? Maybe we'll save for next week. All right, this no, is everything. <laughs> yeah, no, so we, 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 uh, we got our top 10, uh, as you said, split 50-50 between fiction and non. Our cover, which will be obviously something uh, that you can't see because we're on a podcast, <laughs> uh, is uh, we, one of our authors is on the cover, uh, Sujata Gidla, whose memoir, uh, family memoir, Ants Among Elephants, was, a, if, if I recall correctly, I think the... One of the early books that was put forward and the first that everybody sort of, you know, got behind and said, you know, absolutely, this is a fantastic book and we need to have it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's a fantastic family memoir. It's, it's you know, all about her. You know, it's actually not entirely about her. It's largely not about her, but it's more about her family. And, you know, she was born into uh, the untouchable caste in India. And it's the story of her family, uh, her uncle, who has a very amazing life over there. Um, and you know, it's, it sort of kind of spreads out over, over the 20th century and, 
you know, ends up, you know, now she lives in New York and she's a subway conductor. Which is a great story right there. I mean, just a great immigrant story as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, you know, it, it touches on so many issues that are really kind of in the national conversation right now about immigration, obviously, uh, you know, opportunity, wealth, poverty, you know, right. disparity. Um, and, you know, uh, the fact that she makes sure that we all get to work on time. Yeah, right. And her exactly. day job, you know, right. is yep. like an extra bonus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that I mean, so so that's one. What talk a little bit about the uh, the fiction and yeah. So the fiction um, is is uh, it's a pretty you know the, the books in it are pretty you know serious. There's um, one of them is is sort of the outlier, and that that's Gail Godwin's Grief Cottage, and that it's it's more of a you know a straightforward coming of age uh, novel, but it's it's super well done. Um, when when I when it was given to me by Gabe, our fiction editor, he says, "You think you're not going to like this one, but but read it." Um, I not a fan of youthful narrators generally. <laughs> I was going to say know, that's it's my the, personal yeah. preference. Right. Um, I couldn't put this book down. It was great. Uh, the voice is fantastic. The, there's not much in the way of plot, which is also a thing that I kind of like in a book. Um, but the fact that you know, I. I you know, was constantly reading this thing. I was, you know, on the subway. I was up late. I was, you know, on, uh, was shocking to me. Uh, I'm yeah. sh- I surprised even myself <laughs> with how much I like this. <laughs> right. Book. So another book uh, on the fiction list, and, and again, like, about a complete 180 from Grief Cottage, is this novel Ill Will by Dan Sean, which you know is tremendously dark, tremendously uh, you know sort of frightening, in, in as much as a, a, a novel can be, um, and. You know, it it it's also kind of formally inventive. He does some really interesting things with with prose and and uh, how he you know structures his chapters and timelines and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, definitely worth definitely worth taking out checking out. As obviously all one hundred books that we picked are right. You know, yeah. plus the fifty right. kid books, but you know, <laughs> the top ten are the top ten for a reason. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Were there for you any surprise? I guess you did list the one surprise, the one that you thought that you were going to not like and ended up liking it so much. We put it on the, the the top ten. Were there other surprises for you there? Um, you know, on on uh, on the top ten, the other one that that sort of to me was a little bit a little bit of an unexpected one was uh, on the nonfiction side, the apparitionist, um, which is uh, just it, it's a you know what would you call it? I guess you would call it a ripping good read. Oh, you that's know? Ooh, good. <laughs> like that? Good. Yeah, yeah, that you was can, good, especially with the nineteenth uh, century terminology that yeah. <laughs> takes place. That is great. Uh, yeah, and it's it's about uh, this guy who claimed he could take pictures of your dead relatives. You yeah. know, and it's, it happened right after the Civil War, and he was put on trial for fraud. Um, but it, it reads like a like a great novel. Um, and uh, again. That's my background as a fiction guy here. So yeah. when I say it reads like a great novel, that's a great compliment. Yeah, not sure. To, you know, of course, nonfiction always reads well, but the yeah. way it's written is very fictional. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We had a wonderful time interviewing the author. Uh, oh, he was a guest on the show. That's right. Just a couple of weeks ago. And um, it, it was it was really interesting digging into this history. And it did sound very sensational. Yeah. Yeah. And and to read to, to read the book, you know, he, it's it's almost like a like a newspaper account of, of, or a magazine story about like when he gets into the details of the trial and, mm-hmm. you know, you get like the weather that was happening. It's, it's really like a, like you, you were there kind mm. of thing, which, you know, for, for a history, you know, narrative, you know, it really, you know, made it feel like you know, palpable and, yeah. and sort of real. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, fantastic. So do you want to go over the rest of the top 10 or do you want to do you want Let's to run them down. Let's okay, run them let's down. Do let's do it. Good. Let's do it. Okay. Good. So we, we we mentioned Ants Among Elephants by yeah. Sujata Gila. We just talked about the apparition. So I'm going in alphabetical order. Mm. 
for nonfiction. So far, so good. Yeah. Next up, we have The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. We have Extreme Cities, The Perils and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change by Ashley Dawson. And the last nonfiction title is Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics by Kim Phillips Fine. On the fiction side, we talked about Ill Will. The next up is In the Distance by Hernan Diaz. Uh, we have the novel Grief Cottage by Gail Godwin, which talks, spoke about earlier. And then there is Sing Unburied Sing by Jessamyn Ward mm. and White Tears by Hari Kunzru. And that, that rounds out our top ten. That's a great list. It's and, a good batch. Uh, I'm, of course, happy to plug the several authors that we had on the show. I, I feel yeah, like, right. like we, <laughs> we, were, we were a little psychic. More on, more on the nonfiction side than uh, on the fiction side. But uh, it's... Uh, they have some really interesting interviews that sort of built off of those very interesting books. And everybody should go back and listen to those episodes Absolutely. if they have not already. They're all available on publishersweekly.com slash Radio. Yes, they are indeed. Thank, Thank, you, Thank you so much, Johnny. Man, I'm a pro with this. I'm really good. <laughs> so I'm going to take you off the uh, hot seat there. And, and Rose, uh, I, I want to talk to you about your categories. Sure. I, I did two lists, as I do every year. I did one for science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and one for... Uh, romance and certainly on the science fiction side, uh, of, of course, the one of the ones I want to mention is the Bedlam Stacks by Natasha Pulley, another radio show guest. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved this book. I love this book. It's mm. just uh, it's so vivid, and it's one of those books where the plot is sort of complicated to summarize, but the gist is that there's uh, an explorer and spy in the late Victorian era who's gone to Peru to try and. Uh, get some quinine, mm. um, which Natasha pronounced quinine and quinine, and I'm suddenly terrified that I've been saying it wrong <laughs> my entire life. It's one of those things you never right. find out until you're a radio show host. Yeah, and um, and he ends up in the mountains um, at a very high altitude, and the the disorientation of it is so palpable, and it really enhances the fantastical elements of the story. He can't be sure whether he is seeing things that are genuinely supernatural or he's just completely hallucinating from mm. oxygen deprivation. Right. And he can't be sure whether people are telling him the truth because he has lost his ability to distinguish truth from lies. And uh, it's a it's used to wonderful effect. It's very, very powerful to read about. Uh, there are a couple of books on here that will surprise nobody. The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemisin, uh, the concluding book of a trilogy, and it takes a lot for me to put a series book that is not the start of a series on my best books list, but books one and two have also been on my best books list for the last couple of years, and they won back-to-back -back Hugo Awards. Um, these wow. are, And I expect this one to do likewise, right. frankly. Um, these are just tremendous books that are really, really pushing the envelope of what speculative fiction is there are fantastical elements, there are futuristic elements, and they are most of all about people and about the ways that people harm one another, both personally and societally, and all of the compromises that have to be made, and especially in a place with very scarce resources. Mm. So the heart of it is uh, a, a, a woman who wants to save the world and her young daughter who has been so traumatized that she no longer thinks the world can be saved and she just wants to destroy it. And both of them are very magically powerful. And so they're on a collision course. And at last they encounter each other in this book after, after three books of separation and taking their own paths. Mm. And 
One of the things that I really appreciated about this is that Jemison doesn't do the sort of Lord of the Rings trilogy thing of, you know, you, you've seen the story build up toward its climax, and now this is all plot, 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 and action, action, action. What she does here is she builds out the world building. And so uh, we suddenly get a whole lot of information about the history of this world and how it ended up in this very precarious place balanced on the edge of destruction, and even where the magical powers come from and where some of the cultural elements come from in a way that I found really striking and very uh, inventive and very imaginative. And um, in some ways, she's really taking so many chances with this trilogy and they're just paying off. The The technical ability here is unparalleled. Mm. Uh, so I, I will I will stop talking about this one particular book because <laughs> there's so many good books to talk right. about. But um, I really, uh, I again, as I said, I, I expect this to win the Hugo um, this wow. year, and uh, it's really a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, another book that's no surprise: A Closed and Common Orbit, which was actually a Hugo finalist last year because it was published in the UK uh, in 2016, and so we got it here in 2017, and so I immediately snuck it on the list. The author is. Becky Chambers. Uh, it's her second novel. Um, these books are, again, they're really not like anything else that anyone is doing. The first book, uh, A Long Way from a Small Angry Planet, is um, very cheerful in, in a time when a lot of people are doing this sort of dystopian and apocalyptic stories that are, that are very grim. And she's just like, no, people are awesome. People are great. And let's, let's write about people who are great doing great things, this sort of optimistic air. But they are not shallow books. And this particular one really gets under the adventure veneer to, to talk about um, some of the, the real serious challenges and difficult times that the protagonists have faced. And uh, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's, it's an extremely 21st century book. Mm. It feels like, like it comes from a, a generation that grew up on Tumblr uh, it feels like a book that is made to have fans and, and is, is in some way partaking of fan culture and that I, I cannot articulate further. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, a couple of others uh, just go down the list. Uh, there's uh, In Calabria by Peter S. Beagle. And Mark, I know that you're going to love this one. And I'm sorry, this is, this is a, a science fiction? Or this is, is a fantasy, fantasy book. Okay. Um, it, wow. Uh, about uh, a unicorn that decides to give birth in a hollow on the scraggly farm of a misanthropic Calabrian poet. A poet. It sounds like Mark's memoir. It does. It does. Um, and Unicorns and all. For, and, for the listeners who may not know, Mark is of Calabrian extraction. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, 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 think, I think you would enjoy this because it is very much uh, it starts out by wow. saying that this this poet farmer is yeah. living an existence that he acknowledges could have happened pretty much any time in the past a right. uh, few hundred years other than that he has a, a, an American truck that he sort of nurses back to health every time it dies um, but once the unicorn shows up and word spreads then the 21st century comes knocking and people show up with cameras and their tourists and their news helicopters uh, and uh, it's uh, it's quite an adventure. All right, Rose, I'm taking your suggestion. I'm going to read this. I think I right, think you good. should. I <laughs> think you should. A new fantasy fan. <laughs> I never thought I would say yes to, it, going, to a book about Mark. a unicorn, but I'm going to do it. Well, Peter Beagle wrote the last unicorn. Uh, is what he's famous for. He's been writing for over 50 years, and he's he's really a, a grandmaster of fantastical fiction. 
And uh, I I sort of had this, yeah, okay. I mean, of course it's going to be good because it's Peter Beagle. But usually when you get people this late in their careers, they rest on their laurels a little bit. No, this is so inventive and so beautifully mm. written. Not a word out of place. It's really, it feels like 50 years of craftsmanship wow. have gone into this. When Mark work. shows up like a couple weeks from now with like a unicorn <laughs> neck tattoo. <laughs> I can't wait. We're going we're to know what's wait. up. <laughs> Sign me up. Um, and another book, uh, I'm, I feel like I, I, I keep saying these books are inventive, but it's, uh, it's really the only term I can come up with. I feel like everybody's being so innovative this year and really pushing the boundaries mm -hmm. of form right. in SF in particular. So uh, this one is The Witch Who Came In From The Cold. And uh, we give the, t the author as Lindsay Smith et al. It's a collaborative work. And uh, it's a compilation of 13 novellas that are written like episodes in uh, in a, a broadcast show. And um, in fact, it was originally serialized on a website called Serial Box, mm -hmm. uh, which does podcasts as well as putting the, the stories up. And so you read it like you're, you're mainlining a television show that you just downloaded all 13 episodes of the first season off of, uh, or, or you're, you're getting them all off of Netflix all at once and you're just burning through it. Um, it's a big book, 13 novellas, and there's a lot going on. It's an alternate Cold War era uh, where two factions of magic users are trying to control unwitting humans that can channel elemental magic. And uh, it's there's, there's a lot of fun and a lot of backstabbing and spycraft and politics. And uh, I love the serial format. This is something that's sort of been creeping in uh, over the last several years and uh, cereal box has really been pushing it. We had a number of cereal box compilations mm -hmm. that, uh, that did very well this year and that are getting a lot of attention. And uh, then we have two generationship books. Uh, one is an unkindness of ghosts by rivers Solomon. Uh, uh, these are both debuts. Also, it's really lovely to see debuts that mm -hmm. get on the, on the top list. Um, and uh, the other is Numenon by Marina J. Lostetter. And they're very different books. One is uh, about the the politics and clashes, uh, especially across classes and across races, that are happening aboard a ship. Um, that uh, these generation ships have to go such long distances that people are born and grow up and die um, in the communities on these ships as they go. Uh, and in, in the other, it's really about the the technology and um, concepts of identity, because in Lost Stutter's work, uh, the ship is crewed by clones. And so uh, the question of, of, you know, who are you as clone number 17 of the same person? And what's you, what do you owe to the person who you have been cloned from? And maybe you don't necessarily want the ship to go where it's supposed to go, or you don't want it to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, so really different approaches to a concept that's I think has been getting a lot of traction within SF lately, and um, just beautiful, vivid, wonderful writing. And in in romance, I'll uh, I'll go a little faster here. Uh, the there's such a diversity in romance. Uh, there's historical, there's futuristic, there's paranormal, uh, contemporary. Uh, Cowboys, Navy SEALs, firemen, like there's every professional hockey. I've yes. seen a lot of pro hockey. <laughs> yes, ones. there's um, there's a lot of uh, hockey yes. romance, actually. That's a thing. Rose mentioned one uh, a few uh, couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark is also a big hockey fan. So yeah, the, between the unicorn <laughs> book. I'm, I'm finding ways to get you into my hockey. We're doing I'm gonna it. Read, We're going to wow. do it. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to choose five. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did my best, and there's a, there's a lot of diversity here. 
um, a couple of contemporary titles, Positively Pippa by Sarah Heger, which is just so much fun. It's a rom-com and uh, it's a it's a rom-com with a very thoughtful core that kind of skips past all of the misunderstandings and angst about, you know, coming home to your small town, which is a pretty common theme, um, and ends up pairing two friends uh, who decide that they're ready to uh, become lovers. Mm-hmm. And along with that, there, there are just a lot of sort of contemporary life issues around social media, caring for aging relatives, and uh, and it's all handled with such panache. Uh, it's just, uh, uh, it's it's very vibrant, very exuberant. And then a, a complete shift from that, Under Her Skin by Adriana Anders is, uh, is a debut novel that is exploring the after effects of trauma, and it's really more of a, a thriller and a drama uh, about a woman who was uh, tattooed uh, against her will by her ex-boyfriend and is trying to figure out how to mm. uh, recover from that now that she's escaped. And uh, it, I, I feel like these are really exemplars of two strong trends in contemporary romance right now. One is like the sort of fun and fluffy uh, with a little bit of thread of seriousness. And the other is a, a drama that's dealing with major uh, contemporary issues. Uh, there are two historical uh, romances. One is a Regency romance, because you really can't not have one. And this is my personal favorite romance genre. Uh, it's the, the Regency era. Mm-hmm. And this is You May Kiss the Bride by Lisa Byrne. Uh, it's a debut, and it's such a labor of love. She really channels Austen uh, in in this sort of sly wit mm-hmm. of, uh, for example, having a woman who interrupts other people constantly, but then very frostly says, don't interrupt, it's rude. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you just, the reader is allowed to draw their own conclusions. Nothing nothing is, uh, is stated boldly, but it, that way you feel like you're really getting the joke. Like, this is really written for you, and you feel so clever for picking up on the wit, and it's very fun. Uh, and the other is An Extraordinary Union by Alyssa Cole, uh, which is a Civil War era romance uh, in which uh, two spies for the Union, uh, a, a white man and a black woman, fall in love as they're trying to complete a very dangerous mission. This book got a huge amount of attention when it first came out as really, really exciting title uh, and a real step forward. I think in historical romance, um, centering people of color and, um, saying these stories also deserve to be told. And finally on the, uh, the paranormal side, Soul Jacker by Yasmin Gellinorn, who's been writing for a very long time. Uh, and, uh, this is the start of a series in which, uh, it starts with a, a, a political murder that, uh, drags a reclusive, succubus out of her shell mm. and uh I well, figured they would be really outgoing yeah no, no, she really just general. wants right, to right. be left to herself <laughs> she, she runs thing. she runs a one-woman brothel and she just wants to be left alone wow. um but when one of her clients is killed then she has to deal with the political fallout and uh we say that uh, Gallinorn's crackling mix of paranormal mystery and erotic romance boasts a layered complex plot that rewards multiple readings. So this is one for the murder mystery fans as well as the erotic romance fans. All right. So uh, I had so much fun putting this together. It was a lot of reading. Yes. <laughs> there were a couple of late nights where I just sort of sat here at the, the table surrounded by stacks of books going, maybe this, what about that? It's so hard in these very diverse genres to narrow it down to a short list. But uh, I'm I'm very pleased with these with these picks. Wonderful. Do we have time to go on or? Oh sure. Okay. Go for it, Mark. Um, so I'm just going to do 
just briefly, just looking, you know, with in, in addition to the two nonfiction titles that take place in um, uh, in urban areas uh, about cities, we also have Greater Gotham: History of New York City from 1898 to 1919, which predates the others. Are looking to the future of what can happen in uh, cities with uh, global warming, and this one is looking back. This is by Mike Wallace. Um, uh, so, and, and it's kind of interesting how we, we are, we're, we're looking at urban environments this, mm. this time around. Um, we also have, which is great, a, a previous guest, Wallace Shawn, for his collection of essays from Haymarket Night Thoughts. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's on the list. And he was, that was such it, a fun interview. You know, he was, it was really, yeah, yeah, he's exactly who you would think he would be in person. <laughs> so that was good. And then what was kind of interesting for me, uh, is, is the number of, Food histories. Um, hmm. There were a half dozen this year. Two of them made it on the list. One was the Gourmand's Way: Six Americans in Paris and the Birth of a New Gastronomy. And and that that area has been written about before, especially with MFK Fisher. Um, uh, and those were two books three years ago. Provence. Uh, 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 1970, I forgot the, the, the exact year. Um, and this one, um, Justin Spring, who wrote uh, Secret Historian, which was, uh, I believe, one of our uh, top ten, if definitely not one of the long list titles uh, two years ago uh, from FSG. And here, I, I, I love books that, that bring together uh, s- seemingly different people in one area, all doing the same thing. So this is, the writers are MFK Fisher, uh, A.J. Liebling, who's one of my favorite of writers. Course, yeah. uh, Alice B. Toklas, uh, Toklas and Richard Olney and Alexis uh, Lachine. So, so you have all these writers and thinkers and not not real chefs, but people who are writing about food, putting it together, and 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 then kind of introducing French food to Americans at, at a time. You know, some of the you know the first time that French food was put on, not just in restaurants. I mean, we, they had French restaurants before, but on dinner tables. And so it, it, it's kind of cool. The other one, um, I, I've always enjoyed uh, uh, his his writing, and that's John T. Edge, the Pot Liquor Papers. And this is a food history of the modern South. That's the the sub uh, sub title and and again i like to see who is involved in changing the food ways of a region and so he looks at activists he looked at he looks at community organizers and obviously chefs i mean even even colonel sanders um and kentucky fried chicken and how all, all that came to create what we know of modern southern cooking but what happened and it changed. And then, and then I'm just going to go just a little bit. We also have Alice Waters coming to my senses, the making of a counterculture cook. Um, so, so we know her as, as the, um, uh, uh, the innovative chef and owner of Chez Panisse, uh, in uh, the Bay Area, and uh, it's kind of this is this is a quieter book, but um, it's a really thoughtful book. And what's interesting is someone who we have on the cookbook list is Samin Nosrat, who got started in uh, Alice Waters' kitchen. So there's a little bit of connection here and there, and that's salt, fat, acid, heat, mastering the elements of good cooking. And this is one of the things that uh, you talked about innovation before, and 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 the elements have been talked before, but Samin had a way of just just really putting the these these elements together, creating these recipes. And this book just jumped right out of the gate. I think it was a surprise to many um, uh, that that it just jumped on the uh, uh, bestseller list, our bestseller list, New York Times. Um, anyway, I, I could keep going on, but but uh, just looking at the list, the uh, nonfiction, lots, lots of – some memoir. Um, 
I could just go on, but I think I think we're just going to leave it for, <laughs> could for you, readers. Could you though? Know? It, sound, it sounded like you were you were in a cul-de-sac there. <laughs> well, I could. I would say you're, I'm just going to go you're to. You're making uh, me hungry. All right, all right. Back. Okay, then then if you want more, we've got from a James Beard Award winner, uh, Joan Nathan, uh, King Solomon's Table: Culinary Exploration of Jewish Cooking from Around the World. And this is one thing that I love cookbooks to do: is give me a story, give me a history. I'm going to learn mm. something from it. And her recipes are really always stand out and stand up and any kind of standing out there. So uh, we've got that. <laughs> you want one more? Sure. <laughs> one more. One more. Make it, okay. make it a good one. WD-50, the cookbook. Wiley, written with uh, Peter Meehan, who's the founder, uh, co-founder of uh, Lucky Peach. Um, this is a cookbook that I just don't know who will cook from it because it's so <laughs> complex. But it is just such such a cookbook to just sit there beautifully beautifully photographed. This is something this is aspirational. Yeah. Lab, I, I lab do, equipment you got lab equipment on, which, I, I do know, which I, I don't do know, know but Johnny has Johnny has the equipment Johnny can do this I do know you may a, be the only one I know who can cook from this cook <laughs> a, a home chef who's an MIT trained engineer who's the sort of person who, who, would, who, would, who would totally yeah. Yeah. do this who has who has the cupboard full of weird white powders from the modernist pantry and is ready to spherify yeah yeah oh, okay <laughs> so we know okay let me just give Roxanne Gay the hunger yeah. um, mm. that's also on her list so um, I could go on, but I'm not going to. Well, thank, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Johnny, um, and thank you for letting me ramble on also. Um, it's, uh, it's such an exciting time of year. I mean, this is so much work to put this list together, but um, I'm always just so satisfied when we finally got it done. Yeah, it is. It's great. It's, I, I, I'm really proud of this year's list. Um, it's, you know, obviously we, we, we pick from the books that, that, that we review, you know, um, and uh you know, so we don't we don't control everything. Unfortunately, we don't write the books. We don't, we don't publish the books. The books. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, you know, as as Rose just said, I mean, so much work goes into this, so much thought, um, and it's really you know a big labor of love. And uh, I'm I'm really excited to get this list out there. And you know, of course, you know, go to go to publishersweekly.com yep. slash best books. Read, read them all, check them out, and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah, earmark them and buy them. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Johnny. It's always great to have you on the show. We'll, we'll drag you back in here very soon. We'll see about that. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 